let us hear God's word from Titus 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, thus far, Paul here now has introduced himself and given us the best summary of the duties of an apostle, probably anywhere in the New Testament. And so only 13 or 14 apostles existed, depending if you count James in that number. Um, There were others who did work that was similar to an apostle, and these are what we call the apostles that were delegated, so uh, Titus here and, of course, Timothy. Maybe we could include Mark and Luke in that category for writing uh, the Gospels, Uh, but that's it, and there have been no apostles since, not in this formal, official way, and none of us then are, but uh, church leaders and uh, even every believer uh, have been sent by Christ to serve God in his church. All of us are called to nurture God's people in their faith and in the knowledge of God's word in ways that are consistent with God, with godliness, and the teaching of the apostles. And so the foundation on which we stand, Paul says, is the hope of eternal life. Now, ultimately, of course, it's God and his word and Christ's work and such. And yet, here he's saying that the the hope of Uh, Life eternal with God is the foundation on which we stand, and it's therefore the message we are also proclaiming. And so our hope then, he continues uh, to say, is certain. It is sure. It is uh, something we can count on because God promised it. And uh, for everyone who trusts in God, we can have this hope. Uh, God never lies. God never makes his promises. And in fact, he even planned to save his people uh, before he made anything. And so because of these things, this gives us confidence and a surety. Now, Paul then says that God has revealed this truth, this hope. Uh, This began in the Garden of Eden, the first time the hope was mentioned. Um, But gradually throughout the Old Testament, more and more information was given. Christ then came and gave us the fullness of this grace and explained it to us. And, of course, through the giving of the Spirit, led us into all truth. We now, along with Paul and Titus, make this hope known to others. It is done through the preaching of this hope, certainly by people like myself, other pastors, missionaries. But uh, all of us can participate in this hope through teaching at Sunday school, through Bible study, uh, at home with our children, at work, at the water cooler, as it were, uh, with co-workers and so forth. Well, Paul now continues 
here and uh, now tells us to whom he writes the letter. Now, of course, we've been saying this all along. Now he actually states it. And so verse 4, again it reads, To Titus, a true son in our common faith. All right, now, during the introductory sermon that I gave here uh, a few weeks ago, Titus uh, was, you might say, our primary focus. We looked at the, the number of different times that Titus is mentioned in the New Testament. But you may recall that he's not mentioned at all in Acts, which is quite surprising. Uh, But clearly he was with Paul on his missionary journeys, possibly all of them, including the one uh, after his release from prison. Um, Based on what we saw in Galatians, it is likely that Titus was converted very early and even prior to Paul's first missionary journey. We see that On the third missionary journey, uh, Titus was a key player, as it were, in terms of Paul's ministry to those in Corinth. Remember, he was in Ephesus and was writing letters, was sending Titus and so forth. And now, of course, here is Titus in Crete. Um, Now, you may also remember that I mentioned that uh, some people have guessed that the reason why Titus is not mentioned in Acts is because he's related to Luke. And so Luke is not, um, um, I guess, going out of his way, you might say, to to make this point. Um, That may be a possibility, but again, in light of what we see in Galatians, it is uh, likely that Titus was converted very early. Luke, we don't meet him until Troas on the second missionary journey. And uh, it's likely that Titus was connected to Antioch in some way. So with this uh, brief review on some of the things we've seen about Titus, uh, here now, in this particular uh, emphasis, Paul is setting Titus aside to do the work in Crete, as we've said, this apostolic delegate. He's, he's an apostle in a sense because he's been delegated with apostolic authority to do this work here. And so he is very much like Timothy then. Also like Timothy, he is very close in relationship with Paul. Uh, Notice the New King James says a true son. Uh, If you have another translation, you may have a genuine child or something like that. Uh, The word here for son is not the normal word for son. It's it's the normal word for child. Um, And the word here for true is emphasizing genuine, real, not truth versus error, in a cognitive sense, but you might say truth versus error in a relational sense. He is genuine, a real uh, uh, believer, a real child, as it were, in relation to Paul. And so this is someone that Paul trusts. This is someone that Paul cares for very much. They are brothers in Christ, but more of a father-son relationship in this way. And so because of that, it is very likely that Titus was converted under Paul's ministry. And if this is true, and some of the things I mentioned just a moment ago are true, then maybe when Paul went to Antioch through the ministry there, that is when Titus came to faith. Again, we don't know for sure, but something like that is certainly possible. It also suggests to us that Titus is younger than Paul, which is really no surprise there. Um, But because Paul doesn't say anything about Um, the age of Titus like he did with Timothy, 
um, then the suggestion is that maybe he's in his 40s. Remember, Timothy was probably 30 to 35 when 1 Timothy was written, uh, which, again, is about the same time as this one. Uh, so maybe he was in his 40s. But, again, we're speculating, but it is uh, intelligent speculating, you might say. All right, now, <clears throat> because Paul has this relationship with Titus, the clear implication is that the believers in Crete should receive Titus as if they were receiving Paul. And so they should trust him as well. All right, now notice also he says, a true son in our common faith. Now this is significant because remember, Paul is a son of Benjamin. And so he is a true Israelite, you might say. Uh, but here is Titus who is a Gentile, and yet they have a common faith, he says. Now, this would make a lot of sense, say, in the book of Romans, or maybe even the book of Ephesians, uh, especially in chapter 2, where Paul makes this point. So, it must be the case, then, that here in Crete, there was this question of Jew and Gentile, and the Judaizers, and some of those things seem to be uh, an issue here on Crete as well as some of the other places that we've seen um, and talked about in one way or another in Acts or make reference to other places. So um, let's turn here a moment to, uh, to Romans and chapter 3. <clears throat> For the, the, if you will, nutshell idea in uh, this introduction, this verse 4, we see Paul expand upon in, in other places. So in Romans 3, let's look here just a moment uh, at verse 29. I, I do intend to come back to Romans 3 in a bit, so uh, stick something here. But in Romans 3, verse 29, it says, uh, Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So, it's a common faith, right? Jew and Gentile. We're saved the same way. And that is through faith in Christ. If you look over at chapter 4 here in Romans and uh, verse 11, referring to Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe, all those who believe. Uh, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision, to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So you might say true Jews, true circumcised people, uh, to use the, the language here of Titus 1.4. Um, so again, Paul expands on these ideas elsewhere. Um, I mentioned Ephesians 2 a moment ago, the wall of separation that's been broken down. There's, this faith is common. So here is Paul then, as we come back to, uh, to Titus 1, who is uh, now for the first time in the letter saying, hey, I'm writing this to Titus. And of course, we've been talking about this, but here it is now. And he says this about Titus, who he is as a true son, and this connection of their common faith. So clearly anticipating what's going to come in the letter. 
And so this, as it were, boosts Titus before the, the Cretan believers and uh, prepares for um, maybe verses 10 to 16 in particular. We'll see as we get there. All right, so um, when we write letters, we tend to switch things around, right? We put the recipient first. We put the person who writes it at the end. Uh, unless it's a more formal one, we have uh, some things at the top. Uh, but a personal letter is, is usually the other way. But here in, in the uh, first century, uh, the author's first. And then, uh, like we see here in verse 4, the recipient. All right, then next we see the greeting. And so the rest of verse 4 is grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. All right. Well, as always, Paul takes a normal first century greeting and Christianizes it, gives it a Christian flair, as it were. In the Greek culture, it was common to uh, have a greeting such as we have here and say greetings as it's often translated, and we saw that in Acts, you might remember, with some of the letters to the, to the kings. But the Greek word is kairain, and it's from the word to rejoice. And so basically, they would go around saying kairain, like we would say hi or something like that, and they're, they're saying, I rejoice to see you. Well, Paul does not say kairain, he says charis, which is just slightly different um, but it has a very different meaning. Charis is the word for grace. So it's not just, I'm rejoicing to see you. It's grace to you. And so a very uh, specific Christian meaning. And so Paul is, is saying to, to Titus, may God and his grace be poured out upon you. May God's blessings be upon you. His love, his mercies, all these things. And, of course, with the idea of grace, we have the idea of salvation, and in particular, that it's undeserved. And so, back to where we started, Paul says, I'm a slave. Right? So, all this goodness, all this hope, all these wonderful things are undeserved. And so, here is, you might say, the first word out of his mouth when it comes to the greeting. So, it's not just hi, but grace now, in the Hebrew culture, they would go around, and their high was shalom. Even today, you'll hear that uh, among the, the, the Hebrews. Okay? Shalom, which means peace. Or maybe more generally, um, um, I, I pray that God will give you a sense of well-being or health, or that good things will be upon you, or we might say good luck in our culture today. Um, but again, Paul is giving it a much deeper meaning than this. Um, now, before I expand on that, let me say this. Uh, the New King James says, grace, mercy, and peace. And if you have another translation, you don't have the word mercy. Maybe you have a footnote or something like that about it. Uh, let me just briefly say, some manuscripts have it, some don't, simply. <clears throat> um, he probably did not write the word mercy here. Uh, the best manuscripts don't have it. Um, but 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy do have the word, and so most likely somewhere along the line somebody added it in. Um, 
in one sense, it doesn't really matter because grace, mercy, and peace are grace and peace. We're really saying the same things. There's no fundamental difference there at all. But just to call that to your attention in case you're wondering uh, why I say mercy and your Bible doesn't have that. Um, all right, now let's focus on the from phrase here. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. The first thing I want to say in this way is notice how the rest of the sentence, the rest of this prayer blessing of Paul clarifies his intentions when he says grace and peace. It's not just some flippant casual high and good luck or something. Uh, It's really a summary of the gospel because peace comes from God. And the only way that we can have peace is through the grace of God through Jesus Christ and his atoning work in our place. And so this is really Paul's way of summarizing the gospel. God is the one who has initiated this reconciliation. We deserve judgment, but he has graciously given us this hope of eternal life and given us this responsibility to be apostles in this way. Okay. And then, of course, Jesus came to accomplish peace. His perfect life satisfies God's justice, his requirements of exact and entire obedience, and his atoning death satisfies the fact that God wants to punish us because we have broken his law. And so when Paul says grace and peace, he's simply saying, hey, your sins are forgiven you. We are declared to be righteous. We are declared to be holy. God's wrath is turned aside. He is no longer angry with us. And we have peace all due to his grace. God did not have to do this, but he chose to do so. We don't deserve it, and we certainly can't accomplish these things ourselves. So these two words are are Paul's way, or if you were to say grace, mercy, and peace, those three words are Paul's way of summarizing the gospel here. So let's come back to Romans 3 again. <clears throat> Excuse me, let me read a little, uh, a few different verses. In Romans 3, if we start in verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So you might say, this is emphasizing the grace word, uh, if you want to include the mercy word here, okay, and and so uh, here's Uh, an expanded teaching in that way. And then if you turn over to chapter 5 here in Romans, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So, you know, as you read these other passages, you, you get more understanding from Paul. And so when we come to Titus 1, even verses 1 to 4, okay, 1 through 4, uh, not just verse 4, we see uh, a fuller understanding. Um, so simply this is our hope. 
And this is the foundation on which we are standing. This is the message that we are proclaiming. And so this is why Paul was sent as an apostle. This is why Titus is placed in Crete uh, to further this ministry. Okay, fair enough. I think that all that is, is true and right and so on. But uh, note this obvious point. Uh, Titus already knows all this. Right? Titus doesn't need to be saved. Titus, in fact, is being placed in a position of church leadership. So, Paul's not saying, uh, Titus, I pray that God will be gracious and merciful to you and, and show you peace, because Titus already had those things. So what then is Paul saying? How can Paul pray and pronounce this blessing upon someone who already has grace, who already is at peace with God? Well, I think the answer to this question simply is that for Paul, there is, can you say, more grace to receive, more peace to receive for the believer. Now, this doesn't mean that we're kind of partially saved or God is, you know, he's not really mad at us anymore, but he just kind of gives us the cold shoulder or something, you know. It's not like he's ready to strike us down. He's just uh, more uh, indifferent or something. That's not what we're talking about. We're only saved once, and we are fully at peace with God if we are saved. But we must grow in grace. As we say, we must use the means of prayer and the scriptures and such to have more grace. This is something we need as individuals, certainly as, as a church. I think the way to think of it is, is like this. We are declared to be righteous. God has shown grace to his people. Okay? When he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He is no longer angry. We are at peace. But we're not actually righteous yet. And so God looks at, at each one of us here and he sees someone who is perfect. And yet he sees someone who is not just declared to be perfect, but is actually imperfect. You, you follow that. Okay? Our tendency is, is to say, well, yeah, okay, I'm declared righteous in Christ. So why bother do anything? But just because we're declared to be righteous doesn't mean that we're actually righteous. And so hence, this prayer, this blessing, this benediction of Paul to have Titus have more grace. Not to be saved, but to actually become what he's been declared to be. And the same is true for the believers in Crete. We can say the same thing in regard to peace. We are at peace with God but do we actually live that way all the time? When we sin, how do we respond? Do we respond as if we're at peace with God? Do we respond by running away from God? Yeah, how do we respond when we sin? How do we respond when, when something bad happens to us? Do we think God is mad at us and so forth? Or do we, we base all of these things on the reality that we are declared to be righteous and that we are at peace with God. 
See, the foundation on which we stand is our hope. That's the message we proclaim. So how are we going to minister on that foundation based on these truths? And so um, I, I think the idea, if I could put it in a nutshell, is Paul's not really talking about our justification here. He's talking about our sanctification. He's not just saying, okay, Titus, you need to be saved. He's saying, okay, you are saved, now let's uh, grow in grace. And so I'm going to pray that God will give you more grace in this way, that you'll actually become what God has declared you to be. Okay. To put it another way, Paul is praying that God would provide Titus with what he needs to fulfill this ministry. And we certainly need a lot of grace, a lot of mercy, a lot of peace for that to happen. Okay? Whether we're talking about leading a church or we're talking about parenting our children or whatever it happens to be. May God's favor be to us in increasing measure okay, as we minister in whatever capacity it is. And so Paul is saying this to Timothy, or sorry, to Titus, and also to Timothy. Um, and then he is set praying that this grace and this peace would be the, to those to whom they minister. So here, <clears throat> those in Crete. Maybe we could put it this way. May the harmony you have with God extend to those in the church. And of course, all churches need more harmony, more peace with one another. So, Titus is going to talk about the initial grace and peace to people, so that they may come to faith in Christ. But as believers, our focus is on this growth, and it is only possible if it is given by God. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, maybe I'll pause and add this thought here. This is one of the reasons why um, Reformed churches, at least historically, not as much today with the gospel-centered movement, but historically Reformed churches have not left everybody in the church at the altar, so to speak. You know, in, in, in your more um, Baptistic kind of churches, not necessarily Reformed Baptists, but the more normal, if you will, Baptist churches, and uh, those who have altar calls on a regular basis, they're constantly focusing on the initial ideas of grace and peace. And you hear it over and over and over again. Uh, but they don't focus on, if you will, going that next step. And Paul's going the next step. There is much more than just coming to Christ initially. We must become more and more godly. And so Paul's praying that for Titus. He's praying that for the believers in Crete and certainly for ourselves. All right, now let's uh, expand here on this uh, preposition from. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now notice there's one preposition, but there are two objects. From God, and then assumed from the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Now this is something that Paul does regularly. We see it in his uh, opening introductions in his other letters. We see it even on other occasions. This is one of Paul's ways of speaking about the Trinity. By having two objects with one preposition, 
he is basically saying these two objects are very, very, very similar. There's a difference, obviously, between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, but yet there's a unity about it. And so both the Father and the Son are God, Paul is saying. Not just the Father is God, but so too is Jesus. Even as we saw last week in verse 3, we have God, our Savior, at the end of the verse. And now here at the end of verse 4, we have Christ, our Savior. Um, We don't have two saviors. We have one. (laughs) But that one is in the person of the Father and the Son. Two persons. One God. And later we'll see in chapter 3, verse 5, for example, he mentions the Holy Spirit. So ultimately there are three persons and one God. So we have the Trinity. Um, But this is one of Paul's ways of speaking of the Trinity, the way he puts uh, this phrasing together. All right, now, let's talk about each one of these objects here. First of all, God the Father. He is God, so he transcends all things. Right? Remember what we saw this morning in uh, Psalm 113. He is over everything. He, he is, he exists, he is Yahweh. Um, but he's also our Father, Paul says. He is personal. We are his children. He is our Father not because he made us, though that is true. He is our Father because he saved us. That's Paul's uh, emphasis that we see regularly in his letters. And so that's what we have here. So this grace and peace comes from the transcendent God who has made all things, yes, but also from our Father, the one who has already saved us. And then we see the second object is Jesus. And the New King James says the Lord Jesus Christ. Now your translation may just say Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord is not there. Once again, uh, that's because some manuscripts have it and some don't. So depending on what translation you have, maybe you have a footnote about it or whatever. Um, Most likely, Paul did not write the word Lord here. Somebody added it later. Um, And you can understand why, because he normally does that. Uh, Normally he says, Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, all of his letters have it except for 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, as well as Galatians. So his last three letters and his first letter. But every other one in between has Lord Jesus Christ. Um, So again, just uh, briefly saying, you know, this is why some of your translations have it and some don't. So if yours just says Jesus Christ, uh, now you know why. Um, But uh, let's focus on what is here. This is from Jesus, Jesus from Nazareth. He is the one who's accomplished this peace. He is the one who has secured it by God's grace, but he is also the one who adds grace and peace as we grow and so forth. He is the one then who is the Messiah, the Christ. He has been anointed by God to be our Savior and the one who sanctifies us. All right, now notice then how it ends, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, you might remember from last time I mentioned that the term Savior, the name Savior, is not used very often in the New Testament, only 24 times. It's similar to the term hallelujah. You expect it to be used more often, but it's not. Of these 24 times, 
Eight of them refer to God and 16 of them refer to Christ. Of the 24 times, 12 of them are used by Paul. And in his writings, six of them refer to God and six of them refer to Christ. Just like we have here, uh, as I mentioned last week, three of them refer to God here in this letter and three of them refer to Christ. And so my next point is, he says it 12 times altogether, but six of them are here in Titus. Now that's very striking. Why would half of his references to Savior be in this letter? Now add to that question, this is the only time that Paul uses the term Savior in his opening greeting of any of his letters. And he does it twice, verse 3 and now here verse 4. Why this emphasis? Well, obviously it has something to do with Crete, right? And the needs there um, on Crete. Well, um, hold that question, hold that thought. I'll come back to it. Okay, But obviously it's very significant. So let me finish this initial thought here that we see. Our Heavenly Father is our Savior because he sent Jesus. And Jesus then came and he did the work of salvation to save us. So if, if you look just a moment to 1 John, and uh, in 1 John chapter 4, and Paul put, or excuse me, John puts together these thoughts of Paul. In verse 14, 1 John 4 verse 14 And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. That's what Paul is saying here in this opening greeting. God sent Jesus as Savior of the world. So the Father and the Son and the Spirit, of course, are the source of all of our blessings. But the emphasis, now back to my question is that the believers in Crete were surrounded by all kinds of false teaching. In particular, their false views of the gods. And for them, it was the the Greek gods, Zeus in particular. Uh, You also had the emperor worship that took place in Crete. Maybe not to the same degree as in Rome or other key Roman areas, But there still was uh, emperor worship there in Crete. And then in Crete, as we'll see in verses 10 and following, they also had false teaching that was Jewish in origin. And so mystical elements from Jewish false teachers. So Titus must cut through all of this. The false views of the gods, the false views of the emperor, the false views even from Israelites. He must cut through with truth, and he must proclaim that grace and peace are found in God and Christ, who saves us. They are the ones who are our Savior, not Zeus, not Caesar, but God through Jesus Christ. And so Paul is hinting at that need. He'll say more about it again in verses 10 and following. Um, But right now he's saying, Timothy, may God's grace and peace sustain you in that task. And certainly we all need that too. Because today 
we are surrounded by all kinds of false things, false saviors. Hey, how many times do you watch a movie and they, they proclaim someone as a savior, uh, a hero maybe? But, uh, and, and pay attention, how many times in the movie does the savior have some kind of, of cross symbol? Maybe they wear or they put out their arms or something like that. It's done very regularly. We are, we are inundated with these false teachers, um, these false saviors, these false gods. Uh, we also see it in the sports world. You know, how many times do you hear about, well, you know, the football gods, you know, the ball didn't bounce the right way or something like that. Uh, or the weather god, Mother Nature and, and such. And, of course, the key god in our culture uh, would be Darwin with chance and evolution, science. Uh, ultimately, the god... Uh, the biggest God in our lives is ourselves. Um, but because uh, 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 Titus here is also having to deal with emperor worship, uh, we have the same kind of view in our culture, right? Trump is the savior of the conservatives, right? We've heard that over and over again. Well, well, maybe DeSantis will be a better savior now. Um, Obama, of course, was the key savior of the, of the progressive left, and and now Biden's just a figurehead savior. Uh, but we could go on and on about other politicians. Um, but in terms of false teaching, we've talked about critical race theory. I've talked about gospel-centered teachings and so forth. Um, but we also have many other false teachings, such as, oh, God just wants me to be happy. Um, but the point, then, is this. The hope on which we stand enables us to go forward, to proclaim the truth. And like Paul is saying to Titus, so he is saying to us, may God equip you with even more grace, with even more peace. May you become more of who you actually are in Christ. May God sustain you and strengthen you to cut through all these false things. That we might engage with the culture and that we as God's people will not fall prey to those things, that we will not become like the world, that we will not fall prey to what is wrong. And so may God's grace and peace sustain us too. So what I'm trying to say here tonight, hopefully it's uh, not just a bunch of mud, is that Paul is not just saying, hey, you need this to be saved. (laughs) We need grace and peace to live as saved people too. And uh, it's to, to, um, that we would grow in grace. And so here's Paul's opening words to Titus. Words of encouragement, words of comfort, words to uh, encourage the believers in Crete. And may we learn from this. May we, though we're not apostles, may we do the same kind of work in the various capacities uh, where God has placed us. All right, well, a few words here tonight on this. And uh, Lord willing, next time we will start uh, the, the first section of the book, verses 5 to 9 here about leaders in the church. All right, let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father and God, we thank you uh, for your word you have given. We are thankful, Lord, that uh, you have given this <clears throat> to us, this relationship of Paul and Titus, uh, though uh, about 2,000 years ago we are thankful that we can learn from it uh, even today here. Lord, we do pray uh, that your grace and your peace would be upon us, 
maybe for some of us here who've not experienced it yet and are not saved. But certainly for many of us, we pray that your grace would increase. Not that we can be more saved, but that we can become more like you. And that we would move from just a statement, yes, you are saved, yes, you are righteous, to to actually being such. And uh, may the peace that we enjoy uh, with you through Christ then permeate everything that we do and uh, that we might live for you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, sustain us for the ministries that you've called us to, whether it's here at church or at families at home or wherever you have placed us, at work, at school, um, when we uh, relate with our neighbors and so forth. We pray, Lord, that you would equip us then to, to spread this message of hope and that you would uh, enable us to uh, proclaim about this grace and peace through Jesus Christ. And uh, yet we pray especially that you would help us and equip us then uh, with uh, our church here at Rocky Springs, that we would uh, hear these words of Paul to the believers in Crete and apply them to ourselves here in this place, that we would learn about the various things that Paul is going to address in this letter, Uh, that we might uh, learn from it and grow from it and become more and more pleasing uh, to you. And so we uh, just pray that you would be uh, gracious in all these things then. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.